Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, it's a genuine pleasure to have a veteran of international sales for the past 30 years, Zach Seltz, Principal at Global Sales Mentor. Zach's helped people build their business in over 130 countries, and now he helps other people expand their business internationally. Zach, could you give a quick one or two minute rundown on how you got to where you are? I know a couple of minutes probably doesn't do it justice, but there's a lot we have to talk about. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to, uh, Marcus. Thanks for having me. I always say I sort of wanted when I was a kid, I always wanted to find ways to travel. And I found myself in my teenage years selling in a flea market. And one day it sort of clicked and I thought, you know what? I'm pretty good at this. This is going to be how I travel around the world. And I just started in my early 20s selling used military equipment after uh, the wall came down in East Germany. The one thing that I'd say is sort of different that a lot of people did and, and was sort of planned out was I realized that if I spent my 20s shifting territories, I would get a really good background of different countries. So I worked in Eastern Europe, I worked in Africa, I worked in the Middle East, I worked in Asia, I worked in Latin America. And then by the time I was in my late 20s, early 30s, when I did move into a a more managerial position, I had a lot more experience in a lot more territories than most people did. But essentially, since I was 22, I've been dealing with international sales. And I lived more than half my life in different markets. And now I'm settled in Chicago and I do the same thing. So I'm really curious to find out what that early grounding in international, how did that broaden your mind in terms of cultural awareness? Well, there are a couple of things. That's a good question. There are a couple of things. One is most people who do what I do, what typically happens is they they were sales manager for Mexico, and then they became sales manager for Latin America. And then they went from there into the VP of international or something like that, never having worked in Asia or the Middle East or Europe. And they're not that familiar with these other things. Whereas by having a a wider experience early on in my career, I'm more familiar with this. But to directly answer your question, um, one of my first postings. I was working in the Middle East. And, you know, here I am, a you know, a Jewish boy working in Arab countries. And I thought I really need to be able to understand people's culture. And I read the religious books and I read the history books and I got to know how to, to eat the food and everything. Since then, I've become very good at learning a culture very deeply I can give you one example, which is probably my favorite, is years ago, there's a bean dish in Brazil called feijoada, which is difficult to find outside of Brazil. I wanted my wife to try it, so I decided to cook it at home, and I took it pretty seriously. And you you can't just have, you know, make enough feijoada for five people, so I invited a bunch of friends over. (laughs) And I sent pictures to my Brazilian distributor, and he said, wow, it looks like you did a really good job. And about a year later, we're in a meeting with a customer in Brazil, and the customer is saying, you know, I don't like buying from American companies because they underestimate how difficult the market is in Brazil. They dip their toe and then they leave. And I get stuck with a lot of equipment that there isn't service for. He says, I just don't trust Americans. So my distributor pulls out his phone and he shows the guy a picture. He goes, what do you think this is? And the guy says, well, it looks like feijoada. He says, do you think that looks like good feijoada? And the guy looks at it, he goes, you know, that, that looks a lot like my grandmother makes. <laughs> what if I told you Zach made that? And he goes, that's impossible. So my distributor flips through the pictures and the last picture is me standing in the kitchen with the pots. And the distributor goes, wow, you know, um, if Zach is so committed to Brazil that he makes feijoada, I bet I can trust him. So I got a $250,000 purchase order over a plate of beans, right? (laughs) (laughs) This is really interesting because when you're working through channels, partnerships, Mm -hmm. alliances, the only currency you have are trust and influence. 
you don't have any power and you earn trust the hard way by your actions. Right. And it's very easy to lose. So yes. taking that message about the customer not trusting Americans, what is it about weak alliance and their channel managers that makes them untrustworthy? Well, I guess on the one hand, you could say that there are ways to accelerate the trust through what you were saying before about cultural things. So people get very sloppy about what they're willing to learn or what they're willing to do, and they make cultural mistakes. And when you make a cultural mistake, it really hurts your relationship with the market, with your distributor, and with your customers. My personal belief is I like to work with a single distributor in a territory at any given time. Now, that territory doesn't necessarily have to be all of Brazil, for instance. But what I don't want is a situation where a distributor can say, hey, you're letting my competitor sell your product. Now, some people do that. There are arguments both ways. But I want my distributor to know that if he does the work, he can trust me that he's going to get paid and he's going to get the results from his hard work. I always tell people, if there's anybody in the world who can say that you screwed them over, people are going to find him. So you can't be in a position where somebody can say you screwed them over. You have to be honest. And that honesty builds up your reputation, builds up trust. But you have to deliver. You you have to deliver what you say. You have to make sure your distributors, your partners earn from their hard work and that they can trust you that they're not going to get screwed over. That's the key to it. But there are a lot of little symbolic things you can do in terms of culture, in terms of how you interact with them and that kind of thing, right? So you're playing a long game, but during that game, there are little symbolic things you can do to make people trust you more. I think what I've taken from the last couple of minutes are a few things. One is that by playing the long game and when you're looking at your partners, just for clarification, when you talk about distributors, you're talking about right. partners, aren't you? Whether yeah. they're agents or distributors. And just, for, just for, dis- for clarification, what I try, I will sometimes work with three or four different types of distribution partners around the world because some markets really... It's better to have an agent. Some markets really to have a traditional reseller. Some markets. So I, I typically just use the word partner for simplicity's sake, if that's okay. That's perfect. Okay. So one is that you need to play the long game. So when you're prospecting for partners, you're prospecting for three, five years hence. You're not yes. prospecting for the transaction. Also, you need to have the intellectual humility to admit that you don't understand their culture. And it's important to have them help you navigate to make sure that you don't embarrass them. If you make a promise, intend to keep it. And if there is a problem, confess and ask for their help. Because what you don't want to do is create a situation where you are the architect of conflict and where your reputation gets damaged because there is the 3555 rule. If you mm-hmm. do a good job, people will tell three people. If you do a bad job, they'll tell five, who each in turn will tell 55. And in a lot of the international environments where there is a very close-knit community, it's very easy to spend months and months or years cultivating that market and to blow it because of lack of awareness or lack of integrity. That's exactly right. And I can tell you, for instance, if you're talking about the medical market of Saudi Arabia, okay, 30 million people in the market, it's a big uh, $2 billion medical device market, for instance, just as an example. So you would think, okay, this is a pretty big market and there are multiple cities, right? Who's going to know if I do something? But I can tell you the top 25 distributors are all pretty good friends at the level of the owner, the level of the vice president of sales, and the level level of the salespeople. All of those people know each other. Very often, they've moved back and forth between the different companies. 
So if you screw over one of those companies, within a year, everybody within that group is going to know about it. And if you then try to approach one of the good distributors in Saudi Arabia, they're going to be able to say, hey, Zach, I, I heard a story about Zach this year. You know, Zach screwed over somebody. And that's it, right? So you're going to end up being pushed down to the bottom feeders of the, of the ecosystem who will be willing to work with you, but they might also not be too honest. They might be carrying one of your competitors at the same time, right? So this is the way the, the thing works. People talk, people know each other. Your reputation in international channel sales, and I'm going to guess it's the same thing in domestic channel sales, but your reputation is everything. Absolutely. And I think the other thing I picked up is that when you are looking to recruit your partners, you're looking to recruit a special forces unit, not a land army. So you can focus your attention on those who can and will help you to succeed. Right. And it's your job to help them be successful. If you're not helping them to succeed, they'll go dark on you very quickly. Exactly. And if I could uh, elaborate on that, two elements of that. So before I look for a distributor, what I want to do is basically sort of map out a very, very basic concept of a sales process and sort of figure out what I want them to do and what I want to do and what maybe I want a third party to do. Okay. And here's why I do that because it's very easy to say, you know, I want a distributor. This distributor has a really nice building. I'll take this distributor. And the distributor doesn't focus on what you really need. From my perspective, the most important thing for my partners typically is to have the right level of relationship with the right customers. That's typically what I'm looking for. And almost everything else can be taught. Now, very often people say, you know, you don't understand. I have a very, very technical product. And what's really important is to have the right installer on their team, because if they don't have the right person to install the product, the customer is going to be unhappy. And I say, okay, here's the deal. There is not a product in the world that you can't hire somebody for 100K to do the installation, right? And probably less than that. But if they can't sell to the right level of people in, in the customer organization, it doesn't matter. You're not going to install anything. So you can go around and you can hire. And this is something that I go through. I've gone through this personally multiple times where I take over and people are saying, well, you know, we're not sure that our product is right for international. Nobody seems to be buying it. We're not selling very much. And then you take a look at the distributors and they can't sell anything. They're really, really good at installing, but they're not moving any, you know, they're not selling anything. And then you say, you know, if we get the right people who know how to sell and then we, in their agreement, we tell them they have to hire an installer and everything changes overnight, right? That's the type of thing that people do when they find the wrong distributors. You've touched on something that's very close to my heart and absolutely spot on. The problem that I think many vendors have is they make the assumption that the partners can sell. bluntly. A lot of them are plumbers. Yeah. What they're good at is being good technicians. And if you live by the product, you die by the product as well. And I firmly believe that once you've recruited the right partner, your number one job is making sure that they're great at selling your stuff. The plumbing, being a plumber is fine and dandy, but you're not going to build a plumbing business by being a good technician. Knowing how to cut the pipes and weld them is fine and dandy, but that doesn't put money in your bank account. Partners are looking for you uh, to help them make money. And they're in business for their reasons, not yours. I recently did an interview with Glenn Robertson from Pure Channels, and he made a really interesting point, which is vendors spend all this money on marketing development funds trying to get the partners to market their product. But they don't want to market your product. What they want Mm -hmm. to do is market their business and their services. And your product is a means of solving part of their customer's problem. So talk me through your onboarding process 
to train your partner's salespeople? Okay, so basically, just like you said, what you always have to remember is that these salespeople, the partner owner and the partner salespeople, essentially, you know, you could say they wake up every morning and they have to decide what to sell. And they are going to sell the thing that is going to make them the most money with the least amount of effort. And I typically say, I talk about, it's sort of funny, I always refer to my partner's boats, right? I say to my partner, hey, you know, I want you to do this. And he'll say, hey, Zach, how big is your boat, man? Because my boat's 45 feet. And I don't think you have a boat. So don't tell me what to do, right? Because they're doing pretty well. They're doing well today. They don't need me. And what I'm trying to do is show them that they can make even more money with my product. And so first of all, I got to get them excited. I, I have to show them that they can sell this, that there is a, a market that we've thought this through and we know who to sell to. And what people very often focus on is very technical things. They come out and they say, my widget vibrates, you know, 95 times a minute and it's, you know, seven millimeters and we use tungsten carbide. Exactly, right? It's like they're going through these things. I'm like, nobody buys for that. So what I typically do is I'll I'll do I'll talk about the problems that we're solving, how to address that. Now, what I've found is you and I have been doing this for a long time and, and the travel costs for me are very, very high because of the distances. And what I discovered a few years ago was doing a lot of sales training video clips. And what I typically try and do is say, okay, so there's this one particular question. This is the right answer to it. I'm going to do like a three to seven minute video clip. I make 50 of those and I make them available to my distributor salespeople. And they're basically, if this is the, you know, if you go into this particular situation, this person in the customer organization, this type of customer organization, this is the best way to talk about the product. This is how you show it. These are the things you want to talk about. Now, I'll tell you something else that I do with my distributor partners or the salespeople is what I've typically found is very often these are pretty good salespeople, but distributors don't spend a lot on training very often. And very often they don't have a large organization. So they're they're not putting as much resources into it. So one trick that I've found, I, I call it a trick, but one technique that I've found is I will offer training to my distributors. Let's say I want to do a two-day training specifically to cover the benefits and how I want them to sell my product, I'll say, hey, I'll throw in an extra day of training for your people on question on asking questions in the sales process. And, and that you can use for any of your products. I think it'll be really helpful. And I'll do that on an annual basis with different giveaways like that. You know, I'll do a workshop on storytelling. I'll do a workshop on, on asking questions. I'll do a workshop on different things like that. And the salespeople find it very valuable. It gives me a better connection with the salespeople because, you know, like you said in the beginning, you have, you're working on trust and authority, no power. So what I want is a good relationship with all these salespeople within all of my partner organizations. By doing these trainings, I'm building up more trust and more authority and, you know, you can see, even if you take a look at my LinkedIn, there are half dozen salespeople who work for my distributors over the years who consider me a major mentor, more so than their sales manager, because I was giving them something that to some extent they weren't expecting from me, right? And it was very helpful at getting people to produce, you know? This is really interesting on a number of levels. What I'm hearing you tell me is that you train them as if they are your own. Yes. Um, you don't fill them with a steady stream of product data sheets that don't help them to sell. And right. I've seen this time and time again, where the vendor is so fixated on talking about the ugly baby and mm -hmm. giving them the technical information, talk about the product, which no one in the history of humanity has ever bought. People don't wake up in the morning and saying, you know, what I really want is a device that's going to open up the urethra 
It's what I've wanted all my life. They need to understand why. And what I'm hearing you tell me is that you invest in them, helping them to become better overall salespeople so that they can make more money. And the association with you, in fact, I interviewed Mike Weinberg this morning. Oh, um, I love Mike. Yeah, he's fabulous. <laughs> we had such a great interview. I think there are going to be quite a few people upset as a result of it. But And we talked about how so few sales managers really spend their time on their real job, which yep. is getting the result. And in order to get the result, they have to hire the right people, hire the right partners. You have to train them so that they can be successful, whatever they are selling. The amount of time that managers are being pulled from pillar to post, doing useless stuff, having internal meetings, talking to the chief of tiddlywinks about the janitorial supplies. It's amazing. You know, it's like the whole concept of time available for selling and time available for managing. And people don't get that. I've actually had conversations recently with, with people where I've said, you know, you don't quite understand that the more, you know, I understand you want there to be accountability, right? But this has nothing to do with accountability. The more you're asking for more information, more internal meetings, things like this, you are hurting sales. And the person on the other side of the conversation was sort of like, well, I don't understand why you think that. And I'm like, well, you're getting your sales manager in Singapore to be up at one in the morning to have a one hour conversation with you that he had two days before with his boss going over his pipeline, his funnel. And now you're doing it again, but you have nothing to contribute, even though there's a written report about this that you could have read. Where's the benefit there? That kind of thing. And people do this all the time. Absolutely. And so this again raises another question. I mean, when I interviewed Dave Brock, couple of months ago, the time available for selling from his research on average for a typical salesperson is somewhere between 12 and 21%. When you multiply that out against the time where salespeople are highly productive, 25 to 35%, then you are talking about somewhere between four and seven and a quarter percent where they have time available for selling and And they're they're productive. It's a crazy, crazy session. It it really, really is. And I used to say a couple of jobs ago, I used to say to my boss, look, you're expected to bring in $200 million a year. And that means you should be bringing in a million dollars a day, which means every hour of your work should be worth about 120K, which means every minute of your work is worth $2,000. And you piss away your time constantly on stuff that isn't important. You should be focused on the things that only you can do. Now, this was my boss, right? So she really did not like it when I said that to her. I said, this is the reality. You are doing stuff that you could pay somebody $30 an hour to do, and she would do it just as well as you do it. You should be focused on things that only you can do. And I think that's all the way through for every salesperson. You have to think, What are you supposed to produce in a year? How much is your minute worth? If you're not doing something that is more valuable than that, you shouldn't be doing it. Somebody else should be doing it. It's clear you and I both went to the same school of charm. (laughs) Yes. Can I pop back a a minute to say something else about a question that we we sort of got off for a sec? Of course. I'm going to say something else about my philosophy about distributor salespeople, right? I have, again, with the trust and authority, and you cannot necessarily, you know, people will sometimes say, hey, can you give a salesperson, can you give him a $500 bonus? And I'm like, you, you really can't do that. There are things you might be able to give them. You can buy them dinner. You can, you know, a little token here or there, but there are things you can't do. On the other hand, I have done everything I can to help with the career of distributor salespeople over the years. And I've made that a policy and people know it about me and they appreciate it. I often say that a lot of people who have worked with me have gone on to VPs of sales years later. And what goes around comes around. 
So when you treat these people like they are your, like you said, like they're your assets, like they're your protégés to some You're right. right? In a long-term thing, you don't want to help somebody get out. You know, if, if somebody says to you, hey, I hate working for my boss, who's your distributor, can you give me a job? You don't want to do that. But helping him develop his career, helping him learn new skills, helping him prepare himself for advancement is a currency that you have that he might not be getting from anybody else. And the more he trusts you, the more he likes you all of this, the more you're going to get a payoff in the end. And I think that's really important. You've touched on something else, which is really important, which is that you need to spend time in the field. What I see too little of in channel management is channel managers are, to a large extent, little more than overpaid clerks. They spend time shifting paper. They are admin. They're not channel managers. Why is that? Ah, ah, that's a great question. Because very often people say, well, I have the distributors. Why do I need somebody to manage them? Very often (laughs) people say, oh, you know, I worked really, really hard as, as I was a regional sales manager. I worked really, really hard for years. Now they gave me the the job of international channel manager. I'm going to, you know, this is going to be easier because I'll have all these distributors. All I really have to do is communicate with them from my office. And you don't get results that way. And I get this all the time. I talk to people and they say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not really sure what the, you know, what you think the trick is. All you have to do, you you get emails, you send emails, you pick up the phone once a month and talk to these guys. There's not a whole hell of a lot more you can do. You have no idea of what you're doing. That, to me, it's mind-blowing because you get people who have literally, I could name dozens of people who have theoretically that job. You know, They're the head of international sales of a company. They work with 20 distributors, and they have never bid out with the distributor and a customer in the field. They meet the distributors at a trade show once a year. They correspond and and talk on the phone and that's it. Crazy. I tear my hair out clearly. (laughs) Um, And I see channel as being treated like the ginger-haired, bastard, ugly stepdaughter of direct sales. And it's where failed direct salespeople go to die. You're right on that. What a mistake. It's the hardest, most challenging, and also the most important sales job. If you want to grow your business at scale fast, it's through the channel without the fixed cost. Let me expand on what you said about special forces earlier. Okay, there's something in the military called force multiplication. Now, let's say that I am a really good soldier and I can hit a target 200 times a minute. Okay. Let's say that's my absolute limit as a fantastic soldier. Now, I pull in 50 people and I get them each to be able to hit that target 50 times a minute. That's a totally different ballgame, right? I get those 50 people to each pull in 10 people who can each hit that target 40 times a minute, right? Now, the actual production maybe of each person might be going down. But now we suddenly have thousands and thousands of rounds flying instead of 200. And that's what channel sales is all about. If I can go out and close $10 million of deals with my, say, 150 days in the field a year, that's one thing. If I can go out and I can get channels to close $150 million a year with my 150 days in the year, that's a totally different scale. And like you said, that's what people don't get. That is how companies grow. You can't afford to put as many sales resources in the field. You can't, you don't have the time, you don't have the money. Channels is how to do it. But if you don't do it well, it doesn't pay off. So for anyone listening, what you need to understand is today, according to World Trade Organization research, 75% of all products sold globally across all 26 vertical markets, are currently sold through partners. Mm. Gartner has predicted by 2026, 90% of technology products will be sold by partners 
And Forrester has identified that over 80% of products bought today are bought by the line of business in technology. Now, you cannot possibly have that scale or that breadth across your target markets, certainly internationally, but even domestically, unless you are using good partners. And Mm -hmm. it is your responsibility to recruit great partners onboard them effectively, and train them as if they are your own. It is a total myth, and it is self-sabotage to believe that training your partner's sales force how to sell is a bad idea in case they sell your competitors' products. Because like Zach said, if you help them be more productive and be more effective in their role, they become very loyal. I mean, tell me this. If you look back over your career and the partners where you did actually put that time and effort in, you paid attention, how many of them are still live and active in your network and helping you either directly or indirectly through introductions, personal recommendations? So let me put it the other way. Because I've been doing this a long time, I probably have 25 or 30 uh, of these guys who have died. I'd say everybody else, <laughs> everybody else is still my friend, active. I see them at trade shows. They give me introductions. They give me referrals. I have used people that I met 20 years ago to essentially call a customer and say, you know, I don't sell Zach's product anymore, but I trust Zach and I just want to tell you, I think he's a good guy. I think you can, you should at least, you know, get to know him. I think you can trust him. Right. And so, yeah, basically there's only one way out of my network and that's in a box. <laughs> so I love that. Tell me this, how much less effort do you find you ha- you require in order to penetrate and open up a market and to fill your pipeline because of that lifetime habit? It's a huge thing because I would say the default for distributors to distrust a manufacturer, right? And so when you go into a new market and they're meeting you, everybody's say trying to think, okay, how how do I tell if Zach's going to screw me over or not? I believe in very very say accuracy in terms of the distribution. So very often, if I'm dealing with two different types of medical devices, but they're being sold to different parts of a hospital, for instance, I might not use the same distributor. Even if he's a friend of mine, I might say, you know, this really isn't the right guy because I I need somebody who's more familiar with something a little bit different. On the other hand, I have a pretty good reputation and I can have, I can call a, a person and say, look, I know you're not the right distributor for this product. Do you know somebody who sells more into the operating room? Do you know somebody who sells more into the disposables or the ambulance market? And can you throw in a good word for me? And that has made my life a lot easier. People who don't know what this means don't really understand it, but I can set up a distribution network in about a quarter of the time of somebody else just because of that reputation. Well, Zig Ziglar said it beautifully. You know, if you help enough other people get their needs met, you get your needs met in turn. Exactly, Um, yeah. So I want to deal with the contractual side of things. When you're establishing an agreement with a partner, talk me through your process and the values that underpin that process to ensure that you have a watertight agreement that both sides are committed to and comfortable with to ensure that there is clarity because ambiguity at the front end leads to mismatched expectations and politics at the back end. Great question. So so there are a couple of things that are a little bit important to remember. They're important to remember and they're a little different from international in terms of and domestic. So first of all, I always tell people, don't imagine that you're going to send a plane load of lawyers to to Nigeria to sue somebody. If you have a problem, what's going to happen is you're going to walk away. And what you want to do is to, to be able to walk away as cheaply as possible. And the flip side of that is in a lot of these markets, most markets you're working with, the local law protects the distributor. Makes sense. 
they don't want you know the gringo to come in and exploit the local distributor. So if you sign up a distributor, your chances of cleanly walking away pretty low unless you've put it well in your contract, why you can walk away, how you can walk away, et cetera. So that's what you have to remember. It's not about what always astonishes me is people will say, well, we want to put these 400 pieces in our contract so that you know if this happens, we can take them to court. And I'm like, you are not going to take them to court. This is not going to happen. What you really want is to make sure that they can't they can't steal your intellectual property, they can't do certain things, and that you can get away cleanly if there is a problem. That's the first thing. I find that people get tied up in these international agreements, and I've literally seen discussions go on for six months to sign a contract over things that make absolutely no sense. Because again, you're not going to sue somebody. It's not going to get to court for the most. I've signed up about a thousand distributors over the past 30 years. I have never seen any of these successfully get to court, right? I've seen actually inside the United States, I've seen distributors go to court with, with principals. I haven't seen it internationally in my personal experience. So what I typically am trying to do now, the other part of this is nobody is going to do anything without a contract. So what I came up with a few years ago was an idea of an LOI, a letter of intent. And as soon as I decide who I want to be my distributor, I send them a letter of intent, which essentially says, this is to indicate that it's my intent to work with you in the market. It's not my intent to work with anybody else. For the next 30 days, I'm not talking to anybody else. I hope within those 30 days, we can sign the agreement. These are the five main principles of the agreement. I sell this product. You're going to be my distributor. It's my intention that you do these activities, blah, blah, blah. And what I've found is as soon as they get that, they feel comfortable and then they'll start selling. And I've saved myself three or four months of dead time where if they were just sitting on my contract, looking at it and sending it to their lawyers, my company was sending it to their lawyers and back and forth between lawyers, nothing would get done. People who put out a 50-page distributor agreement drive me (laughs) nuts because in their mind, I know this is really important, but it really isn't. You got to cover certain things and then you just got to get these people selling as quickly as possible. Now, the other thing I like to do is I put an annex in it, which basically says it's our intention to have one distributor in this territory. As long as you do the following activities, we will not replace you. And that basically is the equivalent of saying you're you're our exclusive distributor, but it also says that's dependent on your doing specific activities. And I want to put that up front. This includes things like how I want data to be transferred. I don't want to say, okay, I want a a daily report, but I, I probably want, you know, to go through a monthly funnel report, right? I want them to do a quarterly face to face meeting with my regional manager. I might do an annual face-to-face meeting with myself. That is all going into the agreement. How I expect for them to cover their territory, how they expect I expect them to train people. It goes in. And if they don't do what they're supposed to, then we have a problem and we can discuss termination or we can we can find a way to solve it. But I want to know from the beginning that we understand what we expect from each other. This is really interesting. And in fact, off the back of that experience, we've developed a partner-centric satisfaction tool, which allows the partners to define how they will hold us as a vendor to account and how they will measure our contribution to their business. And on a quarterly basis, where we go through a ideally face-to-face conversation, where we identify how we have them rate us based against the criteria that they consider to be the most important. And we have reset factors, we have results, we have actions, responsibilities, and we use that in order to ensure that not only are we meeting expectation, uh, but it's very difficult for them to replace us as a vendor 
because not only are we keeping our word, but each time we touch the review, mm. we're enhancing the relationship and right. creating a way to improve it over the next 90 days, which is long enough to do something meaningful, but not so long that it gets shoved in the back of someone's car and nothing happens. In terms of the agreement, I think another aspect is how we escalate in the event that the salespeople are not doing their bit or the managers right. are not doing their bit. I'm curious what you do up front to establish a strong working relationship with the owners of the distribution partner? That's a great question. Typically, the partners that I'm working with are of a size that I get to know the owners early on. And typically, even in the point of discussing and negotiating, they want to agree that this is a product that they're going to carry. So, so that those discussions are virtually always with the owner. And I say virtually because I can think of a half dozen examples that I'm working with companies that are much bigger and, and that isn't the case. But for the most part, it is. And then typically, yeah, it's a good question. I, I guess I might be falling down here. I'm not sure that I've codified it well enough. What I've typically tried to do is make sure that I'm, I'm having a meal with the owners once a year and discussing things, but not necessarily saying, okay, this is how I want to manage it. And I'm going to you know, have a, a six-month review or whatever. On the other hand, typically every time I'm in the office talking to the VP of sales or talking to the people that I'm talking to, I'm going to pop in and see the owner and say hello. So that's typically the way I would, I would do it. I would say I'm seeing these people at least once a year over a slightly informal situation where I talk things through. Now, of course, when there's a lack of performance, the people I'm talking to are the owners because at that point I'm saying, okay, you know, we expected from you certain results. Those results haven't come in. Let's talk about a, um, a plan to change it. And I can tell you a number of times, maybe as many as a dozen times over the course of my career, I've gone to the owner. I've said, look, this salesperson isn't going to be able to perform correctly. And I need you to put in a different salesperson for my product, that kind of thing. And to a lesser extent, I've come in and said, we really need to do certain specific training for your salespeople because they're not at the skill level that we specified when we hired you, when we engaged. Very interesting. One other thing, I remember when we first met, you uh. gave a brilliant insight into how do you make it easy for partner who doesn't yet know you and trust you to open up the information about specific deals and specific accounts. Do you mind sharing that? So um, very often when you're dealing with partner, you know, the, these are companies, they're, they're very often very successful companies. And every single distributor has been burned by people. And what they're scared of is if they give you information, you're going to use it to go direct. You're going to pass it on to another distributor. You're going to change distributors. They don't want to give you the information. On the other hand, it's critical that you have this information. So about 15 years ago, I took over a company. I took over sales in a company, and they had a lot of distributors who were. Um, you know, had been with them for a while. They had never shared any information, any information at all. They would, send, you know, essentially send annual orders and that was it. And I said, I wanted them to be, I wanted all the information for, I wanted from the funnel. I, I asked them for specific things. I wanted to know all the projects in their funnel and they really, really rebelled against this. So I said, I'll tell you, I understand you don't want to give me the names of your customers, but I need to know that there are specific individual customers in the funnel and I need to know where they are in the funnel and what's going on. So why don't we do this? Let's give them code names. Let's give them numbers. And then I don't know the name of the customer, but I do know that that's customer number 17 and I can follow the activities that are going on with customer 17. Now, when I said that, 
they realized that if they did that, I couldn't steal from, I couldn't steal their information from them. So they went along with it, but it was too much work in the end to change everything into the code name. So in the end, very shortly, they were giving me the real names because by that point, they trusted me when I, even by making that offer, they trusted me. And I ended up getting all the information. So. And the beauty of that is it allows you to coach them and midwife their deals. Exactly. And the other thing that I think is really important is it allows you to focus on the middle of the funnel, which is the bit that most channel managers fail to pay attention to um, because (laughs) of the way CRM works. Fill the pipeline. As soon as you put it into CRM, there's a close date and their attention shifts from prospecting to closing. But it's the middle of the funnel that matters the most. Exactly. And let me touch on two things with that. First of all, that's why I like to use the term funnel and not pipeline, because in my mind, a pipeline stuff goes in and comes out and you don't see what's going on. And I like to work on, like you said, the middle of the funnel, because that's how it moves through. Now, here's the other thing that that I like to talk to people about. So let's say you have 40 distributors. They're all handling anywhere between five and 50 other product lines. So they have a bunch of yours. They each have a bunch of your sales. But in the end of the day, you are looking at hundreds of projects coming in from these 40 distributors, partners. So you should know more about how this works than any one of them. They might know their specific market. They might know a lot about it. They might have great sales skills. Maybe, maybe not. You know more about the whole thing. So it virtually never happens where somebody says, hey, this problem came up and you don't have an answer to it because you're looking at 40 different markets. So if you are in touch with them and you're, like you said, nursing these projects through the funnel, you really have the ability to help them better than anybody else because you know the sales process better than anybody else in the world. And the more information you have, the more you can help them as long as you can get them to trust you. And it's on you. You can't say, oh, those bastards don't trust me. (laughs) Trust you. It's because you didn't give them reason to trust you. And you have to give them reason to trust you. Absolutely. Zach, I've Ah. thoroughly enjoyed this and it's been incredibly insightful. Thank you. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. And tell me, who are you being influenced by in terms of what you're reading, listening to or watching? So I read a lot of history and I am a big fan of General Sherman, General Tecumseh Sherman, who um, was a very, very practical, results-oriented person who took very good care of his team. Now, he has a very bad reputation for being not very nice to the enemy, but he got a lot done with very little resources and he lost very few men. And, and so he's a big influence on me. I, I, I like reading history and seeing how I can use history to learn how to sell better. Great bit of advice. Can you recommend a, a good biography? Yeah, I want to say there is a maybe a Liddell Hart biography of Sherman, but really there are a couple of really good Sherman books out on the market. Can't remember any of the other specific authors, but um, send me the links once I can do that. Sure. Brilliant. Tell me this you've got a golden ticket. You can go back to the idiot Zach at age 23. What advice would you give him? I would say that I think we all at different points in our life have a little bit too much ego. And I would say there were probably a couple of jobs that I quit in my 20s over ego issues that I probably, you know, looking back, I would say, you know, I could have gotten more if I had stayed another year in that job. So I would probably say, be a little bit nicer to my bosses over the years. (laughs) Ego is the enemy. Ryan Holiday's book is fabulous. If you haven't read that. Okay. And final question then, what are you struggling with or wrestling with? I would say the hardest thing for people in my area is always internal issues because I would say there's a sort of belief maybe that salespeople end up as CEOs, but that typically isn't the case in my experience. You get a lot of people who have no sales experience at top management. Very few of them have channel sales experience. 
virtually, I've never met a CEO who has international sales experience. So what you typically end up with is a situation where you're dealing with people who don't really understand what you do. And that's probably the thing that most people like me find themselves struggling with is even a little thing. You say, okay, uh, we're going to start increasing our sales. That means we're going to start increasing our shipments. We probably need to get a relationship with a better shipper who's going to handle international shipments better. And people say, hey, Zach, don't worry about that. Our shipping department will deal with it. You know, And you go, Yes. And then two years later, you're losing millions of dollars in sales because your shipping department hasn't caught up. And that, that's hugely common. And you can, you can take that across the board. So I'd say if you want to say, what do I struggle with most? It's arguments internally over things that impact, that impact sales. You know? Interesting. I'm curious then, do you approach the internal sale with the same level of rigor that you do an external sale in terms of pre-call planning, identifying the cast of characters, rehearsal, rehearsing your internal sponsors, identifying detractors, and then post-call debriefing to feed the next pre-call plan. You know, Marcus, if I did that, I'd probably have that 45-foot boat, wouldn't I? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's my weakness probably, is I have never done as much work on that internal sale possibly as I should. And that, that's a really good point and a really good piece of advice that I'm going to take from you here is, is maybe I should be thinking about that better. Yeah. Thank you. I think the internal sale is often just as important because if what you're trying to achieve is not understood, yet it actually is material to the C-suite or key influencers and detractors key objectives and how they're going to be measured, how they're going to be rewarded, then it makes a good deal of sense to plan in the same way. But again, sometimes I think familiarity breeds contempt. I think that's something that I, you know, looking at it, I would say I've been a little sloppy with that. So it's a good point. Excellent. Okay. So Zach, thank you. How can people get hold of you? So I have a website. It's www.globalsalesmentor.com. I'm on LinkedIn under Zach Selch. I think I'm the only one. You can reach me uh, those ways. Or you can reach me at Zach at GlobalSalesMentor.com. Those are the ways you can reach me. And I am always happy to talk to people about ways that, uh, of growing their international sales. We have a bunch of different courses and trainings and coaching, as well as done-for-you services. Excellent. Zach Selch, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Marcus. This was a true pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Again, if you believe that you would be a great guest on the podcast, then please email me at m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sandler.com with I want to be a guest on your podcast in the subject line. And if you found this particular interview interesting, 